everyone. You are listening to episode 271 of At Percussion Podcast. Today is February 11th, and with me are my wonderful people, Carly Vino. Hey, Ksenia. How's it going? Going well. How are you? Good, good, good. Hey, I'm going to be um, extra girly, which is not usual for me, but I love the earrings you're wearing. Ooh, thank you, lady. <laughs> which also means that if you're listening, go watch. Um, there's plenty right. of more to see than my earrings. They, they actually, they look kind of like little glass wind chimes. Oh, <laughs> wind chimes are really relevant to our conversation today. So that, that's good. Thank you, Carly. <laughs> um, and my second lovely co-host, Ben Charles. Hey, Ksenia, I also like your earrings. Yeah. I wouldn't have noticed if Carly didn't point them out, but now that she did, I noticed them. <laughs> I love your red pants always. So that's a eternal compliment. <laughs> Um, ben, what happened to music history today? Yeah, so if you're listening on February 11th, uh, that is our release date, uh, I've got a few music history items. In 1916, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra played their first concert. It was the first municipal orchestra to be supported by taxes. In 1949, Igor Stravinsky's Orpheus was premiered. And big news for me, in 1964, the Beatles played their first ever U.S. concert at the Washington Coliseum in Washington, D.C., with some early Beatles classics on that one. But the big item I wanted to mention for today is that in, excuse me, 1847, Thomas Edison was born. Thomas Edison, of course, the famous American inventor that to many other credits to his name, he is credited as the inventor of the phonograph. So the phonograph was invented in 1877 by Edison. Uh, there had been several inventors, or a couple of inventors, I should say, before him that had created machines that could record sound, uh, but Edison's was the first to actually be able to record as well as reproduce sound. So there was, for example, something called a phone autograph before that, which could take sound and turn it into a visual represent representation, but there was no way to actually like put that on speakers and play it back. The original phonograph used wax-coated cardboard cylinders rather than flat disks, and these uh, the flat disks were introduced in the 1890s, about 15 years later, by Emil Berliner, who was a German-American inventor. Uh, improvements throughout the years included modifications to the turntable and its drive system, the needle, the sound, and the equalization systems. And if you're like most of us here, uh, it's funny, like if I think about the evolution of recording uh, throughout my lifetime, like there were tapes for like maybe 10 years, and then there were CDs for maybe like 10 years, and then there was digital music you would purchase, like iTunes for maybe like 10 years, and now we have streaming music services. Well, if you are older than me, uh, basically from the 1890s until tapes and CDs hit the market in the 80s, uh, records were the dominant uh, music audio recording format for the day. So uh, it's amazing they had such a, a long-lived uh, thing. So in 2014 is when digital music services finally matched those of physical sales for the first time. But interestingly, as tapes and CDs have gone by the wayside, uh, records have come back into the fold. And in 2020, record sales surpassed CD sales for the first time since the 1980s. So a lot of audiophiles now are into records, of course. and. They are making a resurgence for their sort of uh, trademark warm sound, as the audio people say. Right. And we already talked about that, how that's really bad for the environment, way worse than CDs. So just stop being hipsters, everybody. I, I thought, the, didn't you say streaming was worse than CDs? Or is it records are worse? Both. Both. Just don't listen to music anymore. <laughs> Go to live shows, people. <laughs> yeah, get out there in the world. Drive your electric car on renewable energy to a show. Exactly. Right. Um, I loved when I did some research on the evolution of, of listening to, to music. Yes, there's the whole records thing. But then when you could actually like listen to your radio in your car or have like a tape in there, that was amazing because you could take your music with you. And then when you had a Walkman, uh, what I didn't know is that there were certain cities in the U.S. or towns, whatever, places where you could not listen to them outside. They were banned because people thought, oh, my God, you know, you're going to get hit by a bus because you're not paying attention. You're just enjoying all this music in your ears. You're distracted. And now nobody cares. Everybody walks around with headphones in that are completely invisible even. So, yeah, yeah I remember, looking I, at I remember, their phone. I was going to say, I remember watching a, a, a YouTube, uh, like, I can't remember, YouTube read like their premium tier uh, story about Walkman. 
and our Walkmans, I guess is the correct plural. And uh, yeah, like they showed news reports and the idea of putting headphones on to listen to music and tuning out the world, people were losing their minds. They, oh, it's so antisocial and it's, it's just terrible. And it's literally, people literally thought it was gonna be the downfall of society that people were putting headphones on, which obviously we've done somewhat okay since then. I don't, I don't know. I was, was gonna say, but. so was that <laughs> the downfall of society? That's when we started our downward spiral. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I saw somebody um, with wireless headphones in like like earbuds and i was just like who are they talking to what is happening you <laughs> know like because i had no idea i was like this is a totally new thing it's so bizarre it now is. it's so like you know normal yep yep now now we we're gonna be walking around with those glasses that don't even show people that we're actually not paying attention to anything around us but just scrolling endlessly scrolling both eyes <laughs> Right. Uh, all part of the matrix anyway. Yeah. Oh, man. Man. <laughs> yeah. It feels like it now. Wow, that went really deep really soon. Um, thanks, Ben. Was that it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, happy, happy birthday, Thomas Edison, inventor of the phonograph on February 11th. He will be, uh, he was born in 1847. So how old does that make him? I'm not using a calculator. Uh, Happy uh, 174th birthday, Thomas Edison. <laughs> nice. Good job. Good job, Ben. Still our math whiz. Um, awesome. Well, everyone, our guest today, you've already heard her voice, but let me introduce her. She's a true rock star and the actual kind that, you know, tours arenas. Um, she's a graduate of the University of Miami, and you might have seen her jamming with Childish Gambino, no less, with whom she also performed at the Grammys. Like, these are really, really high profile gigs. Um, and the Lo-Fi World Beat Group Tune Yards. If you think that is cool, um, get this. This happened also before college, by the way. Uh, she was featured alongside Tony Royster Jr. in the Percussive Marketing Council's Showcase campaign. Like, hello, how cool can you be? <laughs> and she has also appeared on Jimmy Fallon, Conan O'Brien, Jules Holland, and has been featured in Modern Drummer and TomTom Tom Magazine. And you guessed it right by now. Our guest is the one and only Danny Markham. Danny, hi and welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for a beautiful introduction. Um, I also love your earrings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That is the passcode. Thank you. Now everybody's admitted into the inner circle. <laughs> Thank you. So lovely to have you. How are you doing? Where are you right now? I'm doing well. Um, I am currently in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I was living in New York when the pandemic hit. And actually, I was in Europe touring. And I was touring with Trixie Whitley, who's a friend of mine in New York, amazing guitarist and vocalist. Um, we were doing shows in Belgium and Switzerland, which was very close to Italy. So we had to cancel our last two shows. And then, you know, we headed back to New York and not a week later, it was like, boom, shut down. Everything was shut down. And we were like, oh, we kind of already saw this like happening in Europe. So I stayed in New York for the beginning of the pandemic. And then in June, I came back down to Louisville to be with family, be near home. And I've been here uh, for however many months that is. Our mathematician. <laughs> Man, go, go, how many hours, go. <laughs> Since June. So like, you know, seven months. Yeah. No, no, six. Wow, that's. Time flies, oh yeah. So I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, which is my hometown. It's where I was born and raised. Time flies when you're not doing anything because it's a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. Well, Danny, I had a, a question to kind of uh, get us started today. And uh, there's this BBC documentary series that I've actually never watched. And I just found out there's actually an, an uh, episode on Evelyn Glennie. So I will need to check that out. But the, the series is called What Do Artists Do All Day? And I think it's like it's if a student, say, wants to go to college and then do what you do in so many words, uh, I think oftentimes the parents would have questions about, like, how, how does that work? I know what an accountant does. I know what an elementary school teacher does. I don't know what an artist does. Uh, and to me, uh, I've worked with 
very few people in in showbiz. Uh, but for example, I, there was one time where I got to play with Jennifer Lopez and Pitbull, and they had these dancers with them. And it's like, so you live in LA, you travel all over the world, and like you've got downtime between gigs, and like, how does your health health insurance work? Does your are you, like your agency take care of that sort of thing? So. Could you just tell us kind of like, I know it's a very broad question, but like, what's it like having a career like you do? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's so different for every artist. Um, I'll say it is just so, um, it's, it's so on and off. So like, yes, when you're on tour, you're like, you know, you have this schedule sort of written out for you. You're, you know, you're typically depending on how you're traveling, like, We'll do a show in a city. We'll we'll finish our show. We'll get on the bus and we'll usually drive through the night. We'll sleep. We we'll drive through the night and we wake up in another city. So we typically have all day before you know sound check to kind of explore. Um, that means we're 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 waking up. We're already like in the arena. So we're we're already like there's no sunshine. We're just like in the arena, and. Typically, you go in and you shower and you, and you wake up and then, you know, you try to explore and see the city. So that's sort of how tour happens. Right. And then you're trying to get your jog in. You're trying to, like, eat healthy, find your you time because you're literally waking up and you're like bandmates like right across the way. You know, it's like you have to really carve out time for yourself. Um, so that that's like tour. And then you finish a tour like with Gambino. We toured. Um, you know, for a year on and off, and then we were off. And then, you know, that's time for us to individually create and collaborate, maybe work on a new album with Donald, work on other projects. Um, sometimes I'll be, I'll, you know, try to do private lessons, um, master classes, um, stuff for my companies that um, endorse me, um, different things like that. Um, so, it's a huge shift because it kind of is like how people probably feel during the pandemic where it's like all of a sudden like you have all of this time um, and you're not sure what to do with it and you have to be very proactive um, especially because when I'm touring I'm not like I'm not in the city where I'm based so when I get back to my city I want to reconnect with my local web my local community my local network which takes a lot of you know um efforts you know reaching out like trying to take local gigs um so yeah there's like these these huge shifts there so you obviously have a you have a classical music education you went to um um what has the school taught you that is relevant to your life of a freelancer right if now? i could sorry if i could latch on and say also what did the school not teach you yeah yeah there's a lot of both <laughs> um miami like just being the city that it is and this was why when um high schoolers reach out to me asking about schools i do push that the city is very relevant um, because I started gigging in Miami when I was a sophomore and I was taking a lot of corporate and wedding gigs that immediately it, I'm getting this pop music, you know, there's like top 40 styles into my playing and like I'm, I'm learning all of that music, which has very much influenced my career path. Um, so I would say Miami was a great city because there were all these amazing world music influences. There was um, a ton of really good funk and jazz. Um, obviously the jazz school at Miami is amazing. So even though I was a classical percussionist, I tried to like dip my fingers and dip my toes and as many other sort of ensembles as I could. I really wanted to saturate myself with the musicians that I thought uh, were talented and, and were good and that the as many people as I could play with really um so yeah I mean I feel like the education like the the system for percussionist in going to school for an undergrad is a little I think it's getting better but like I studied right I was a classical percussionist um but that didn't really that title wasn't really appropriate for like 
what I would really be doing in my career, which at the time, you know, I wasn't sure, but I feel like classical percussion is like very much orchestral and chamber music. And I found out very early on that I definitely wanted to dip into some other stuff. So um, I felt like theory wise, like I kind of wish I had had more of the training that the jazz performers had at UM. Now, I, I don't know if that's shifted, um, but some of those classes I wish were a little bit more in depth and, and rich in, um, I guess like a higher level um, in what I wanted because I think the vibraphone and the xylophone, these instruments very much have a big role in jazz and improvisational. Um, and I think the theory for the classical study is just a little bit different and didn't quite prepare me for what I really wanted to do. Um, but thankfully, Ney Rosaro was there and he opened us up to Brazilian music and, and a bunch of different other um, influences, influences that were improvisational. Um, so he, he very much gave me a jazz class and like opened that world up to us. So I wonder specifically, Danny, it sounds like UM was the perfect place for you to be because there's just so much diversity in music and popular music and Latin music and all different cultures within, you know, a program where you were a classical major. But I wonder if you'd tell a little bit more specifically how the classical training influenced the work that you're doing now. You know, what what skills did you get from from that training that you find yourself like, oh, I'm so glad I learned how to do this? Yes. Um, well, I would say tune yards is a very good example. Um, classical percussion to me was basically being able to layer patterns. Um, so like being able to do triangle with this hand and then maybe like a rhythm with this hand and then a stomp with one hand and being able to even if I needed to like write out those patterns and see where they line up on a grid, um, definitely helped me to um, be work uh, my independence into my playing. Um, just the ability to build patterns in general, like having the knowledge of being in an orchestra and seeing like such beautiful scores come together, being able to add tasteful parts, um, into a setting that were maybe a little bit more like of an arrangement or larger longer phrases rather than just like doing short rhythmic like truncated things um thinking more orchestrally is definitely like an influence um and then yeah i mean my ears i think were really developed in being in symphonies and being in um like ensembles that were more classical um it's classical using that term in that way um because i've i learned to listen and to um, allow space to happen and not always feel like i needed to be playing which i think can be a little bit um overwhelming when you have a drummer and a percussionist and it's too much rhythm and i think a lot of times that's where it becomes annoying, you know? Um, when you hear that, it's not, it's, it's not, doesn't sound good, you know? So I think like that, my classical training is a huge influence on the way I approach music, the way I create, the way that I um, listen and uh, interact with musicians on the stage. That's awesome. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about the process of auditioning for a gig. And here's what I found out throughout my research. First of all, you are a badass rag player. And I saw <laughs> videos of you at the age of 11 rocking pacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you did research. It was it's so so fascinating, lovely. And then I heard you also mention that when Tune Yards had their audition, you sent in among other things some rag videos of, of mm -hmm. you know, you playing rags, which I thought was just so interesting. I would have no idea what to send for such an audition. So for our listeners who know like, okay, well if I want to teach at a university, here's a recital that I have to prepare. And then if I'm going to go for an orchestral gig, here's a list of 85 excerpts I have to prepare. What do they do if they're like, hey, dude, you know, what about Childish Gambino? Like, how do you prepare for that? What is, how do you go for it? 
Totally. That's such a good question. Um, so sometimes for auditions, it will be very specific. Like you need this thing and that thing and like you kind of have to do this certain thing. Tune Yards is a good example because she just wanted to see me play and she didn't specify what she wanted to see and what she wanted to hear. Um, so, and this, this call or this contact came from a friend. So like a lot of times, like the more that you play, the more people you play with, the more opportunities that you take and that you, you know, are a part of, the bigger your web becomes. So this was like a friend told me about the auditions. Sometimes auditions are kind of closed. You know, you have to get somebody to, to, to let you in. So that was the first thing. Um, and then she didn't really give like, um, she didn't give a list of what she wanted. So I, at this point, I didn't really have a lot of um, videos and audio archived. Um, I didn't really, I hadn't really, um, worked on that in in you know having that in a portfolio which is something i highly recommend um so i had to use what i had i had my video from my college performance for my, i think it was my senior recital um i had some footage of my band that i had in miami which was uh like a rock pop band and then i think i had some footage from another band i was in so i sort of pieced it together and the reason I used the rag is because it showed that I had skill in a way that wasn't just very straight ahead, like band, you know, like, like drum set or, you know, like percussion. It was like this sort of different thing. And I knew that it would impress because it was fast. Um, and it showed that I had a concept of theory. Um, so that's why I added that. So I, I was, I was pretty, um, uh, specific or I guess um, I don't know I, I wanted to look good you know so I just put a few things I was like this will impress I know it will impress. I think I put something with like some like more like world like stuff and so I sent that and but I also I think before I sent that I looked I, I looked at up Meryl I, I listened to her interviews I watched her play I wanted to see what what she would be interested in. I basically like researched her so that I could feel like I already knew her and I could present what I felt she would want to see. Um, so, and I think that really helped me. Like when I met her, I felt like I could sort of gauge, interact with her in a way that felt familiar for her because I had already sort of gathered what she might um, be into, you know? Right, and that's, I mean, that's a brilliant piece of advice for any place that you might be auditioning, always go do your research because you want to make sure that you communicate in the best way possible with the person who's evaluating you and then perhaps giving you that gig. Um, but okay, but how do you get how do you get to perform with Childish Gambit? I mean, how does that how does that happen in a person's life? It's so amazing, and you get to play like Glockenspiel. Hello, represent. Like yeah, yeah. I was so <laughs> proud of having the Glock at the Grammys. Oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned, sorry, in another um, podcast that you had like a, a, a week that you got a phone call. And it was like, will you come with us on tour? And you were like, sure. In a week, how do you? How do you prepare? What's it like? They throw a bunch of music at you. They're like, Here, here's the set list. See ya. How does it work? Yeah, kind of. Um, so the story for this is really cool because um, the musical director of Childish Gambino is Chris Hartz, who's a drum set player, um, incredibly talented and extremely intelligent. And he went to UM. So him and I were already very good friends. Um, and actually, we played a festival together. I was playing with Tune Yards and he was playing with Childish Gambino, I think probably for the Deep Web Tour. Um, so they had seen us play, they had seen me play, and then I think we got off tour in 2015 and Chris just called me and, and asked, he's like, I see that you're off tour, would you be available to join us? And at this point, prior to this, they, they didn't ever have really any percussion in their live shows or really even on the records. And then Awaken My Love was like full of percussion. So Chris sent me the, the album and uh, I basically just listened and kind of put together like um, a list of instrumentation that I thought would work and that would be nice. And then, you know, I listened to that album and then some of the main songs from the prior albums and, 
yeah, and then, you know, we rehearsed for three weeks. So it was like, I did have like a little time to like sit. And for me, like listening, like, it's like, I want to listen when I wake up in the morning. I want to listen sometime throughout the day. And I want to listen at night. Like I like to listen to things and practice at different times of the day. So it sits in me a little differently. You know, it's a, I'm, my brain's in a different space. So that's really important. Um, so yeah, I like having the music on in the back and that's typically how I, I learn. I don't always have to be behind the, the set or the setup, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, so that's, I, you know, and then we rehearsed and um, yeah, so that was a scenario where it was like, it was part of my network. Like I didn't have to audition. Chris already knew how I played. They had already seen me play. So the more that you get out there and people see you, the more that they're like, oh, I, I already know how you play. I want your sound. I want you to join, you know? Yeah. You've already had your audition. You just didn't know. You already played it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, ben, you have something. Yeah. Well, I, I have this like rant I go on sometimes <laughs> about uh, to my students about uh, the, the evils of music notation. And no matter what it is, uh, Bach or a contemporary piece or a commercial music style, whatever it might be, uh, there's this obstacle of like black and white dots on a page being converted into sound. And like, how, how often do we see a student that is just struggling so hard with the reading of something that it sounds terrible? And I know like an, an interesting part of your training is that you grew up playing in this group that we've talked about on the podcast at some point called the Louisville Leopard Percussionists. And I'm assuming based on the content of the group and the age of the children, that it was probably not so much a reading group and probably a, a more learning by rote group. Um, so could you tell us how that, first of all, just how that early training went, how that group operated, but then beyond that, how you think that's affected you as a player in the years since? Yes, um, this is a conversation and a topic that I've actually spoken about recently with a colleague. Um, and so, yeah, the group that I started playing in we learned by ear um we would learn like um a line like a melody line and sometimes you know we we would just listen to it or sometimes we would put a phrase to it we put a lot of phrases um like this rhythmic pattern that's like a that's like a traditional latin pattern so we would put I want pizza, give me a hot dog. I want pizza. And then it's not like so many like random notes or random um, rhythms put together. It's this whole phrase and you're like, oh, and a kid's like, I want pizza, give me a hot dog. Yeah, of course, you know? So we, we learned by ear in that way. Um, and it was great because we didn't, we didn't really like, need to see the notes or anything you know it was like we were developing our ears we were developing our muscle memory which is a huge thing um and then you know i the music the notation came later on in middle school and that was a whole new world i mean it's a whole different part of your brain um so both are super important i think that um i have mostly I mostly go by ear when I'm learning and then sometimes I'll use notation to help um, help me out like if I need to see where things line up um, so I'm very happy I know how to notate um, and then um, it definitely helps for like film you know sessions like reading sessions those things so um, but yeah I think it's really important not to always just go to notation because you want to be able to listen to something and play it back, you know? I just like, I have to laugh because like hearing you talk about this, like not, not to throw anyone under the bus here, but I think the worst percussion resource is that Vic Firth poster that has like all the grooves. Like here's, <laughs> here's jazz, here's how you play jazz. It's like, no, like you can't, you can't learn how to play jazz music from one little tiny line on a big poster of drum sets. <laughs> I was right. like, it's insulting. Like, just throw that thing away. And it's confusing, like, when a kid sees that, you know, because they're like, oh, this is how you do it. You know, it's like, it's not real. Yeah, yeah. I When I teach my students drum set, I always like, it's like, you have to get a, a seat, you know, an album that has this sound on it, whether it's funk music or jazz music. Like, you just, 
you can't go by the Vic Firth poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have to listen to a lot of different music, you know, like, I mean, I think the more music you listen to, the more influence you'll have and the deeper you can get inside of different grooves. I grew up, my dad always listened to Motown. So like where I have a lot of friends who grew up with like classic rock, I definitely grew up with Motown and I, I think it influenced my playing a lot, just feeling like that really pocket, like upbeat, like that sort of groove style. Um, so yeah, I mean, I imagine that, and like now I wanna, I wanna listen to more. Like I, I just, I need to hear more, especially like, I mean, you know, these like Afro-Cuban rhythms and Haitian rhythms and, and East and West African rhythms, Northern African rhythms. I mean, they're all so interesting that the more you listen, the deeper you can go. Like, you know, I mean. That's yeah. amazing. So what are you in, in your, in, in those fancy circles? What are you known for? Because in our circle, you're a Danny who gets to play, who, who plays those fabulous shows because she's amazing. but in the world of percussionists who play with uh, you know, all the rock stars and pop stars, what is your niche? What are you like, what's your thing? Um, I think my thing, I thought about this, um, cause I was like, what is my thing? I, I think that I'm a very good auxiliary percussionist. Like I, I, I can play in the pocket, I can layer different parts. Um, I can play well with a drummer. Um, I can play a lot or I can play a little. Um, I can do a little bit of everything, um, but not, I'm not like, I, like, I wish that I played more like robust conga, you know, play. I wish my, my language, my vocabulary in that world were bigger. And I definitely want to work on that, but I would consider myself an auxiliary percussionist. Like I play with emotion. I play in the pocket. I play, um, tastefully and not so much, although I hope to work more on this. Um, but, you know, soloing, like I don't, you know, I don't do like a lot of like tons of big solos, you know, I'll, my solos will typically be very like kind of just simple, like following the melody, you know, with embellishments here and there. Um, so, yeah, I would say I, an auxiliary percussionist would describe what I do. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, does, does anyone else know who Ray Cooper is? No, he, uh, he's a he's an auxiliary percussion auxiliary percussionist. Danny Danny put that name out, uh, and he's played a lot with uh, George Harrison and Elton John. Uh, and if you've if you've seen uh, Elton John play, Ray Cooper's the the bald guy that plays congas, and and he plays a mean tambourine up in the air. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to yeah, I just wanted to mention that name uh, in case anyone had seen him. He's an outstanding uh, example of an auxiliary percussionist and. Yeah, I mean, we think commercial music like drum set, like that's immediately what our mind goes to, or like, you know, fiery conga player. But yeah, like there's a lot of merit in being able to play tambourine or triangle on a record and make it sound good. So, yeah. Totally. And yeah, I think that, um, and I don't know if that's a term that's used readily, but like I, like one of my best friends who plays in the band, Lynette um, Williams, she's, she's an auxiliary keyboardist. Like that's how she identifies herself. And that's very much a thing. And I'm like, well, I'm also an auxiliary percussionist. Like I play, I'm, I'm part of the, um, the rhythm section, but I'm also playing lead lines on the vibes on the Glock. Like, and you know, I definitely think that's the best way to describe like the position, especially that I have with Gambino. Awesome. So what would you say is like the most challenging thing chop wise you had to play? What are, what are the types of chops that you have to keep up when you're this kind of a performer? Um, definitely. So that being said that I don't solo a lot, there are certain songs where I definitely go ham for like outro sections or for like breakdowns. Um, so I, congas, I have to keep my chops up. That's the one thing that like, I feel a lot of pain here if I'm not in shape you know, all through here. So I do have to keep um, my conga chops up. So that's one thing, like the bell and the vibes, like that stuff, since I'm usually with like vibes, I'll do lead lines or pads. So this isn't like fast, you know, stuff. 
Glock, it's, it's lead lines. So the conga chops, I have to keep up. I have to warm up. Um, I need to be able to have speed. Um, and then um, challenging, the most challenging thing is being tasteful, you know, like the vibra knowing where my colors fit. The vibraphone sounds great with the roads. The congas sound really good with Chris's uh, Brazilian sordu drum that um, we got him. Um, my my glockenspiel sounds great with like a guitar or um, the steel pedal, you know, like just knowing where my sounds match, you know, in the band, we all know like where our sounds match. So if I play something on the vibes, Lynette's ears are immediately going to want to play the roads, you know, or maybe not, maybe something totally different, but just knowing those things I think are important. Like I, I, I want to know, every instrument that um that's pl being played in the band so like our guitarist has several keyboards um our bass player also has a moog the uh, lynette has the organ and then she has the clav and she has a moog and she has a couple like um korg keyboards so i just they're all so different i want to know everything you know and the more you know about the other instruments the more that you're going to be able to develop your sound in a way that feels good with the band. Well, Danny, you had talked about, you know, like in a sense of instrumental technique, you know, keeping in shape, but I saw there was a YouTube video of you and it seems like you are maybe into yoga and just general wellness as well. Can you tell us how that plays into your life? Yeah. Um, Sometimes I'm better than others, but um, I think just being physical in general is something that is deeply a part of me. I grew up playing sports. I grew up in a very athletic family. So like basketball and being outdoors and running, like if I don't use my energy, <clears throat> it just stays inside <clears throat> and I get anxious. I get anxiety. I am not able to be my best self. So I know I need to sweat. I need to run, I need to stretch, I need to do things or, or take a walk. It's not, it's not always like going to the gym. I'm not much of a gym person. I'd rather like move my legs from point A to B and then like do something at point B. But um, whatever it is for you, I think at least for me, I know that like moving and getting energy flowing, like Chris and I sometimes will like do jumping jacks or we'll like, you know, we'll just do things like to, to get the blood flowing before the show, because like if your hands are cold and your body's cold, it's like you can't even like find the groove sometimes. It's like so important. Yeah. And we want to look good on stage, you know? <laughs> of course. Benefit. We want to look good on stage. <laughs> I've been talking with a lot of students lately just about this because I think through the pandemic, like more than ever, you know, students aren't even getting like the, the incidental exercise through their days, like walking to the bus stop or whatever, carrying moving instruments, right? None of us are schlepping right now. Right. Um, one silver lining um but yeah i've had a couple of, we're, we're all online with studio classes and we've done a couple studio classes where we're taking 15 minutes and doing like some just stretching like we're checking out a yoga video online and it's just so so important so it's nice to hear you say all of that too um well, I think cool to like sorry um just to incorporate it like into like the music class because like you need to stretch like, it's not like, oh, we're doing this weird, like, new thing. It's like, no, you, you actually need to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I can't say I always appreciated that when I was younger. You know, like, as an undergrad, I wasn't, oh, here's my stretching routine and my slow warm-up. But the things you learn with age, I, I think, at least in my case. Not only the things you learn, but the things that are become necessary. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like, yeah. It doesn't feel so good if I don't do this, so I better do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Better work when you were 18, but when you're 30-something, not so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> good point. Well, Danny, I wanted to ask you, thinking about, you know, I think a lot of our younger listeners probably have questions about career paths and, and the trajectory that we all take isn't as musicians and artists usually like here I'm gonna get this degree and then that's gonna qualify for me me for this job in this position and there are lots of them you know more more of us have twists and turns and question marks and 
dead ends sometimes that turn into new opportunities. I wonder with your path and your career, have there been any kind of pivotal leaps of faith or um, intuition kind of moves or what's what's your experience been like with your career over the last the last several years? So, oh, that's, um, yeah, I mean, a lot, uh, it's, it's one of those things for me, like, I have always tried to take as many opportunities as I can, um, especially in the beginning, because I think as we get more into our field, we're able to choose a little more, but at first, taking every opportunity, that was huge. And then once you have all these, you have, you know, these tentacles out in these different places, then you can sort of pick and choose. You're like, well, that just didn't sit with me, whether it was like the vibe of the people or just the level of ability, like that wasn't for me. Okay, boom, open that day up. I don't want to do that again. Do something else. And then sort of just navigating constantly like this is a yes, this is a no or, you know, Uh, My buddy Ray told me, um, he said that, you know, a gig should always be two of three things. And this has stuck with me. Um, It should be, it should provide money or the vibe should be good, like with your people, or you really love the music. Um, So two of those three things. And that's stuck with me. And it actually is pretty spot on. Um, So yeah, so if something isn't fitting, pretty much won't do it unless it pays very well. Um, And then, yeah, um, so like when I moved from Miami, I had basically played most of the venues that were in the city that were playable at my level. Um, And then I had played with most of the musicians that uh, I felt were the best musicians. So at some point I was like, okay, I could keep doing this circle. but I kind of wanted to branch out. I felt like I had kind of plateaued in what I could accomplish in Miami. And so that's when I decided to move to New York. And then New York was a little bit similar. I mean, New York has an amazing jazz scene, which is not a scene that I had really ever been a part of outside of like Latin jazz. Um, I'm not really like a jazz kit player. I play kit more like rock, pop, funk. Um, So New York, you know, for me was kind of the same thing. I was like, I'm not really doing what I came here to do. I gotta, I wanna go somewhere else. So then I like just put my stuff in storage and moved out to California. And so that was kind of spontaneous and and serendipitous because not a week later, Meryl asked me to go on tour after being connected, you know? So kind of just like following like, you know, this gut feeling and then also like, if I'm not feeling satisfied or if I'm not learning or if I'm not creating, you know, then I'm probably going to switch a few things up. Um, And then again, a new city means hustle, taking the opportunities, playing some gigs like I don't like, I didn't like the music, but so neither did the other person that was playing. And then, you know, we connected and then there was a different gig that came from that. So not every bad gig is always bad, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think something that I've noticed a lot uh, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast is that there's this sort of post-graduation funk that most people get in now you will perhaps be the kind of person that stays in the city where you you know, went to school and graduated, which means that you have connections, you might be able to get some gigs, but the moment that you move away from that and you obviously lose the structure, especially if you go to a different city, one like New York is challenging, it can be really hard. Mm-hmm. Now, we've all heard the, it's not a myth, it's truly so difficult to get, to break into the New York scene. And I'm wondering, you know, with this hindsight that you have, um, what are some of the best ways for a new person to go ahead and connect and, but you have to be, you know, careful. You have to not step on any toes. You can't be like, yo, I showed up. Where are those those gigs? Like, it doesn't work like that. You have to be nice, but how do you present yourself? How do you go ahead and make that cold call of like, hi, do you need someone? Do you even do that? How did that work for you? Yeah, so I think moving to a different place is scary and exciting. 
Um, the first thing that I will always do is I'll make a list of people that I know that are in that city. And I might, I don't like bulk emails. Um, I won't send everybody the same thing. I have a different relationship with every single one of these people on my list and I'm going to interact with them based off of that. I think authenticity is very important and coming from like an honest place. So I might reach out and just be like as simple as like, hey, like I'm moving to the city. Um, like I would love to connect. I would like love to like get into the scene. I want to play, you know. Um, so definitely reaching out, utilizing your network. Like especially in New York, people want to help you out because they know what it's like. It's not easy for anybody going to New York, no matter how talented you are. Like there's, there's so much talent there. So you have to um, just, you know, be like going to jams is really important, I think in any new place. Um, and then, yeah, using your network. And then I always try to put myself in places where I want to be. Like if there's a venue that I want to play, I want to go see a show there. I want to see what's going on. I want to see who's working there. I want to see what type of musicians are playing there. And then I want to maybe meet those musicians. You know, you got to be around. You can't do it from home. Well, it's a pandemic, so <laughs> different world. But you got to be there. You know, you got to you gotta imagine yourself truly in those spaces, which means like get your butt there and like see what it's like, you know, because that's the way you're going to make these connections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to share, you know, um, I moved from the U.S. after I got my doctorate and artist diploma afterwards, I moved to Hong Kong uh, for a year, but I didn't know that it was going to be for a year. And I had um, one personal contact which wasn't within music at all. And everybody else was sort of like a friend of a friend of a friend, maybe. And I went there without any instruments. So for me, it was like, okay, well, I have to figure this one out. How is this going to work? And of course, there were many obstacles uh, along the way, including not, not only the instruments, but you know, so much more. But the thing that I did, which turned out to work well for me is that um, I researched the scene there because I didn't know there's not too much that we hear about Hong Kong's percussion scene in the US or in Europe where I'm from. So I researched the scene and I went to see as many concerts as I did and I went up to people and I said hi um, and I just tried to have a, I, I mean, I introduced myself, I tried to have an intelligent conversation about it and I honestly just appreciated the scene where I was at. I also did do research and I reached out to institutions that had something to do with percussion. And I said, hi, I'm new. I, I love this thing that you do and I'd love to be involved in any way possible. Just keep me in mind, you know, here, here it is. I exist, I came to this event of yours and I loved it. And it took a while. It's not like there's an instantaneous result, but five, six months later already, I had some engagements. I had master classes. It just takes a bit for people to get to know you, to trust you, to figure you out. But what I've realized, and especially they've been really kind to me, um, is that if you, as you said, if you come from an honest place, and for me, it was really like, okay, I don't know if I'll be able to play, but let me at least go and enjoy as much as what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. um, I got to be involved in some of those. So folks, don't be discouraged. It's, it's hard, especially if you go to New York. So just Yeah, it's not easy. You just, you really have to like, you have to really work hard, you know, like all the time, like especially right when you get out of school, like you have to be really active, you know, and just like be out there. And then, you know, just um, like you said, I love what you said about following up. Like I went to your show and then like, you know, the follow up, like that's, you know, people see that as like very professional and like, you know, it's it's polite and it's a it's a great, you know, it's a, I think it's a really great gesture. Yeah, it, it it helps and it's also really nice to appreciate your fellow musician i mean send send that little card that little email it's really sweet yeah all right so i'd love to know about like the craziest most challenging gig that you've ever had have you ever had like a vibraphone topple over or <laughs> i don't know a crazy raging fan running at you <laughs> or something oh um some of my scariest gig moments were like electronic 
bass. Like the electronics stopped working. You know, I I did a lot of SPD playing in tune yards, and like the cable would like stop working. I would just be like, you know, it's like panic. It's like I, I have no control over this. I don't I don't know anything about this cable stuff. You know, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, I some you know some wedding gigs where that there's like there's no barrier between like I'm playing bongos like this was back in Miami days like playing bongos and like people just come up and like start playing you know and you're just like there's no like there's no separation and, and people just don't get it especially when they're partying at a wedding or whatever and that's always been very uncomfortable or like drunk people like knocking over your instruments and you're just like you know you don't want anybody to not have a good time but you also want your space to be respected and it's a hard conversation to have if you don't have like a band leader that's like protecting you in that way um i want to think of something like scarier i feel like there must have been a time when like an instrument fell off the stage i f i think i have fallen off of the back of a stage oh my god a thousand percent like, you know, I thought I had gauged my amount of room and I'm like, you know, jamming out and then I just fall off. Like that's happened to me a couple times for sure. No, As I, you know, sometimes you have these like small stages where you're on a platform and like, <laughs> that's not yeah. fun. It, it's, it's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about electronics. And I think that is anyone's like biggest point of failure. Like no one ever has a vibraphone cord break in a concert. It's yeah, it's like always electronics. <laughs> And like, I know, like, in you know, they've been criticized for this, but like the Super Bowl halftime show, like the musicians are lip syncing because there's no time to move all that equipment out there and do a sound check and perform the show, you know, like in, in any reasonable way. But like, I kind of, in our little chat that goes along with this, Carly and I had this, this gig one time and uh, you said like, basically you had to either like the people you were with, it had to pay well, uh, and you had to like musically get something out of it, like two of those three. And that gig, I definitely liked playing with Carly and it definitely paid. And I'll stop it. <laughs> but that, that's that, how it is sometimes. It, that gig though, it heavily relied on electronics. Um, there was like, you know, a click track and like, you know, a live electronic track and like lights that went along with it and all. And uh, Carly can vouch for, you know, it was like a, I don't know, like a noon to three rehearsal or something like that. We didn't play like the first note until like 2.30 because the electronics were just failing. And we're all sitting there like, I, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's like, we were also like, are they going to respect our time and let us out of rehearsal at three when they're supposed to? And so like, I remember we were like, sort of rehearsed like a couple pieces and then just started flying through stuff. And I think there was even one or two tunes where they're like, you'll be fine on the gig. Don't even worry about that one. Next one. Oh, right. I think it probably yeah. was fine too. What's that <laughs> I think it probably was fine. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it was, like it was actually very with the click, easy yeah. gig. But yeah, I mean, like, man, electronics are just, uh, and I've heard so many stories, even just a, a piece as simple as playing like a live marimba solo with a backing track. Like, I've heard horror stories of that failing in spite of a sound check or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, always, uh, it's always risky. Yep. Another thing that is very scary. So when I moved out to California, I landed in Oakland and that's where I started sort of gigging again. And I had decided, I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna do like, I'm not gonna get a coffee shop gig. I'm not gonna be a barista. I'm not gonna like work as a cocktail waitress. I really wanna just do music. And that was a big decision because I didn't really have that, I didn't really have money at the time. And like, it was a risk, you know, because safety is being a barista, you know, you have like this certain amount of work. Well, I didn't, I didn't have that safety net because I decided to just focus on music, which meant I had to like make gigs happen. So one of the gigs that I took was like um, a musical and it was a lot of swing. And I really hadn't been playing kit in that style for a while. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. No, it was like mortifying. I was like, I really am not hanging the way that I want to hang right now. And like, I got through it, but like, to me, there's nothing more terrifying than not feeling prepared for a gig. Um, so I guess some advice would be for, for me and my, you know, myself or whoever would go down this route. If you are going to do a lot of different style gigs and I still, I still dream of like doing musical stuff, like you, Find musicals that you like and just, you know, put your headphones on and, and run down, you know, or get the music and run down the charts. 
because you got to keep that stuff in. Because I used to read super well, and then I was like, oh, cool, I forgot how to read. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by fire, you know, but you did it. And look at where you, where you are now. So everything turned out amazing. I got through it. I might have not gotten the call back for the next round, but yeah, I got through it. <laughs> it's okay. Well, came along. I'm doing other things, so. <laughs> We learn more from those experiences sometimes than than any than the great ones. Absolutely, good point, Danny. I wanted to ask, um, how have you been keeping busy during the pandemic? Like, what what kinds of projects do you have? Anything on the horizon? Um, yeah, so I initially was tapping a, a bit into the virtual sort of live stream. Um, I did a performance with my friend Sarah Newfeld. She's the the violinist for Arcade Fire. She's extremely talented. So um, we happened to be quarantined together in New York because we shared a studio. Um, so we did some stuff together, which was really fun. Um, and then I sort of like needed. I missed the road, so I started to take these small road trips. Um, and my friend, uh, she. Her and her sister built out a van. Her name's Angela Leno. We actually used to be in a band together in Miami. Um, so we would bring little toys into the van and we would take these little road trips. So we'd be like making music in the, in the van while like traveling across, you know, the country, um, which was exciting. So I've used this time very much to kind of like dig into like, what is my, where, what is my creative voice? You know, like I am able to put in a lot of creative input with Gambino. Uh, uh, Tune Yards was more like very much to the album, like I learned it to the T. I was creative in picking my sounds and my instrumentation, my metals and stuff that I tried to emulate the sounds from the album. But with Gambino, I do get a little bit more creative um, input and that's been really exciting. But still, there's still a part in me that's like, there's there's more personal creation that I want to access. Um, so that's sort of what this time has been. Um, well, playing xylophone again also, like that was my first love, you know, like ragtime, like it just, I don't know, it just like, it makes sense to me and I, I just love it so much and it brings me tons of joy. Um, so that and then like reaching out to people that I really admire and that I love and just friends, you know, like, hey, let's do a little something together. Like, what do you think about this? Um, so yeah, like it's been a time to create and to slow down and to reach out to people that I hadn't, you know, reached out to in a while. Um, I'm back in Louisville. So again, it's like being in a city and being like, okay, like, I'm itching to collaborate. Like I need to access my local community. Like I need to be in Louisville and be here and and get into the scene. Recently, actually today, earlier today, I think I told you about this, Ksenia. Um, I did a, a recording and a, and a filming with um, this quartet, um, which was a collaboration and a kind of, I don't know if we're, we're from such different demographics and it was just so unique. Um, the, the instrumentation was cello, piano, um, voice, and I had like, I got to make this percussion setup, which was unique, you know, every setup can be different. Um, I used glockenspiel, um, I had these like Chinese wood blocks, um, cajon, and wind chimes and cymbals, the colors. Um, so that was so fun, you know. Um, so that'll be coming out actually this, uh, the weekend of Valentine's Day on the 15th, I think. Oh, well, that's a little bit after our episodes. Everybody keep a lookout on that. Okay. Yeah, I can give you the information. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So, Danny, going back to the Xylo rags just for a second, I, I have to ask, do you have a favorite xylophone rag? Well, the first one I ever played was Log Cabin Blues. So Same. That, same? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That's it's fun. Cool. It's challenging. You know, the doubles are like, you know, you really can like, never worked those enough, you know? Um, and yeah, it was my first, so it holds a dear place in my heart. I haven't played as many as I'd like to. I loved um, Bye Bye Blackbird, I think, was it? Is that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I played that one in my senior recital. That one's beautiful, because it's like a bigger arrangement, and it 
it slows down and it has like a lot of different sections that open up and some rolly parts. Um, so that was, that was another, I would say that's probably my second favorite. I'm sorry, my phone keeps going off. Um, yeah. yeah it's popular. <laughs> I mean, if that was your first drag, I'm serious. Everyone should go and look up Danny's 11 year old video of just slamming, like killing even, it. Where is, is that on YouTube? I didn't even know. It's on YouTube. It's yes. amazing. <laughs> oh, I'll have to check that out. Hopefully I don't sound bad. I mean, you sound amazing. I, I'm almost like, I'm gonna go up to that 11 year old and be like, do you wanna be my student, please? <laughs> it's, it's fine, you're ready. Don't worry about it. College ready at the moment. <laughs> it's so fun, you know, to be able to, I feel so lucky that I found my passion for music at such a young age. Like, I feel so fortunate because I really like, when, when, I, when I touched the drum, when I felt rhythm, like, I remember the way it made me feel and I remembered like the amount of sense that it made and I was like oh yeah this is exactly where I'm supposed to be and I was like seven or eight you know um so you know thank you to the Louisville Leopard percussionist like, Diane Downs is like one of the most incredible mentors I've had in my entire life um she's just amazing we're still very close actually that's amazing. And she gives me access to her studio anytime I'm home. We have this agreement where we can never say no to each other. Oh, wow. Wow. That's yeah. so it works out. Like we just have this thing where it's like, you know, she's like, like for the, um, for the filming that I did, you know, like there was no question that she was like, yeah, go get whatever you need. Use it. You know, it's like, and then I always go teach. Actually, they have a ragtime uh weekly and i go and i help out you know a little that's amazing that you give back to the community where you came from and that's why i think that project has now lasted for i mean over 20 years it's because it seems like the alumni come back and always give back to the new generations of kids which is so wonderful so yeah sure. and it's a great way to like just kind of keep that um like teaching just happens so fluidly because you know you get a little older then you come back and you help out get a little older maybe you can get paid a little bit get a little older maybe you actually become part of the staff like yeah it's just uh it's a natural progression and and diane like even if you graduate from the leopards like i think typically the age is 12. um no everybody always wants to come back because diane has this thing you know she just makes you feel so good about being yourself and She's just such a fascinating person. So she said, you know, she'll never, she'll always have the doors open. So anybody who's been in the group can come back. And I think everybody needs a home, a community, like even, you know, you can find it at home, but it's nice to have one away from home as well. And some people don't have it at home, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, before we wrap, Danny, last question for you is, what are you most looking forward to in 2021 what is your dream for this year because let's hope that all that junk went out with 2020. yes i really want to be back on stage i miss performing like in a very very deep way i miss the connection with people i miss being able to translate you know a message a positive message in that way i miss I miss playing with people, like whether that be on a massive stage with, with Gambino or like in an intimate venue, like here in my local town with like three of my friends, like I just miss that interaction. That's my dream for this year. And, you know, hopefully by summer, I don't know. Yeah, summer outdoors performances we all hope for and yeah, hopefully by fall we'll be vaccinated and yeah. better equipped to maybe even go indoors and perform yeah you're lovely and we'd love to see you on stage again because you're just such a powerhouse and such a ball of energy and it'd be awesome to find more videos of you but until then whoever uploaded that one of her being 11 that was great you can find more vintage videos and give them to us diane. i'm like i'm almost certain it was probably diane the 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 head of the the founder of <laughs> can't say no yeah exactly yes you can't say no well i would love to also um 
stay connected with y'all and, and hear whatever you're doing as well. So, you know, I am always an email or an Instagram message away. And, and for any of the people here too, like, you know, sometimes we think about people that are in places that we see as like the ultimate or like, you know, that goal place, like that they're not tangible, but like, I am very much tangible and I'm happy to share, you know, what I know or my experiences. Um, so don't hesitate to reach out. Well, thank you so much. Tell our listeners, where can they find you? Um, so the best way is my Instagram, which is at Danny Markham. So it's uh, D-A-N-I-M-A-R-K-H-A-M. Awesome. And we will put that in the description of our episode as well, so they can reach out to you and follow all your future exciting projects as well. Well, thank you, Danny, so much for being on the podcast. It was such a pleasure to meet you finally and to listen to your stories. Just thank you so, so, so much for sharing so selflessly. Thank you. I mean, honestly, like anything, just like talking about music with people feels so good. You know, like thank you for this opportunity and I've really enjoyed it and I'm so excited that we're connected now. Awesome. Awesome. We will definitely stay in touch. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs>